Right then, uh, 7.09. We're going to come to domestic news after 7.30 this morning, but let's get right into the US election. Perhaps you, like me, were gripped to the screen yesterday. It was impossible to look away. I suspect whether you uh, are in favour of how it turned out or not, uh, it was just, frankly, one of the most dramatic media events. It was more than just a, a US election. It was a global media event. Amber Phillips, political reporter at the Washington Post. I mean, if nothing else, this must be one of the most remarkable stories that you've reported on. Uh, you know, people at the Washington Post who have more experience than me, you know, decades of covering presidential elections say they have never seen something like this um, in modern-day presidential politics where one candidate came uh, from completely out of the blue last year and com- turned politics as we know it here in America on its head. Now, let's deal with this question of the polls. The polls right. that told us uh, it might be close, but, you know, we had leading analysts, Sam Wang, for example, on this show the day before the election, saying that there was more than 99% of a chance that Clinton would win. He just didn't see a way for Trump. And then what I heard through the day yesterday was that the path was narrowing for Clinton and the number of ways to victory for Trump were just opening up. How did they get it so wrong? It's going to take days, weeks, and months to sort that out. I know that's the answer nobody wants to hear. Um, I think it comes down to the fact that pollsters simply didn't expect the voters that came out for Trump to come out in such big numbers. And the reverse is likely true. Pollsters who thought some would go vote and tag them as likely voters when they calculated X percentage for Clinton in Pennsylvania um, didn't go vote by, by, you know, possibly tens of thousands of numbers. As one of our top pollsters here at the Washington Post said, you know, how we determine who is actually going to vote is broken. The question is... Was it a sampling problem? Was it a waiting problem? Were we not talking to the right people? Um, Was this just a movement election that caught everyone off guard? And that happens sometimes when you have sort of a populist grassroots election. It's hard to capture that in the polling. Yeah, I, I mean, it's like kind of an unsatisfactory answer, but that's what we have right now. But frankly, in hindsight, we can say, I think, quite clearly that Donald Trump was uh, a step into the unknown. No one could really anticipate the impact of uh, of a reality TV show come uh, mogul running for president. Um, they might have made comparisons with uh, Ronald Reagan, for example, as a public figure before running for office, but really no one's seen anything like this. I think we've reflected that. The thing is, what now? Uh, it's a divided country. Donald Trump said all the right things in victory, but is it enough to convince those, some of whom have apparently taken to the streets to protest against his presidency? Uh, No, no. One speech is not going to heal what America has gone through over this past year um, and and is likely to continue to go through over the next few years. I don't know what the answer is. Um, You know, we had Republican leaders come out today and congratulate Donald Trump on his victory, and I'll note those Republican leaders had their own beef with Donald Trump throughout this campaign. And in every single one of their congratulations, they said Donald Trump got things off on the right foot by being open and conciliatory and wanting to be president for all Americans. I think that was a subtle signal from Republican leaders to tell Donald Trump, 
please don't go back to this identity politics that you rode to victory with. Don't don't go back to framing um, your your new presidency as the white males versus the other, meaning okay. everyone else here in America. Um, and I think that's what it's going to take for for our country to try to heal. Why does it always have to be about race? I mean, to be honest, with the U.S. more than any other country, and this is partly reflected by just how multicultural and some of the positive aspects of, of American society, but the fact that you've got this uh, melting pot of cultures, uh, why does it always have to come back to breaking voters down into white, uneducated males versus um, everyone else? You hear me pause because I, do, I don't have a good, a good answer to that question. I mean, race is and, and always will be, I think, the original sin here in America. It's going to be the scar that, that we as Americans, no matter what color or gender or education or socioeconomic level we are, carry with us going forward. Um, I think what happened last night was that any anyone who thought America racial divisions were healed somewhat after President Obama's election 08, you know, got slapped in the face. Um, I don't know if those divisions were always there or, or if they, they percolated, you know, with our first African-American president. Um, I've talked to some smart people who think Hillary Clinton's gender was a factor in in bringing out the, the male white vote in the Midwest. Uh, these are all really, really tough questions yeah. that get to the wound here in America um, that we don't have answers for right now. Yeah, but, but there is a point that's been made a, a few times, and I think it seems like a very valid one, that for, for many of those who don't fit into that uh, white stereotype, the idea of um, just going for a... A, a white president in Hillary Clinton seemed like a, a backward step from Bar- Barack Obama and they just couldn't bring themselves to vote for her. Yeah, I haven't personally talked to voters who have said that. Um, I think it it is, you know, for whatever reason, Hillary Clinton did not really excite minority voters as much as Barack Obama did in 08 and 12. Uh, she still won like 88% of African-American voters, but Barack Obama won 90, I think it was 92%. Right. Um, you know, Barack Obama won 71% of Latino voters. Hillary Clinton won 65%. Uh, for whatever reason, again, we're still trying to untangle that. Uh, yeah. She just didn't excite minority voters the way she needed to. I mean, we can look at trends, of course, and we, and, and you're right. I mean, it's, it's just grades of of majority or minority, but the, the fact remains that it certainly was not all uneducated white men who were voting for Trump. There were a fair few minorities who voted for Donald Trump. There were lots of women who voted for Donald yep. Trump. We can't escape from that fact. No, the polls got women specifically in very wrong. Um, you know, we saw going into this election, college-educated women, think, you know, the suburban soccer mom in Pennsylvania or something, going very heavily for Hillary Clinton by double digits um, after Trump's 2005 Access Hollywood tape came out in, in October. We saw numbers for college-educated women move even more toward Hillary Clinton. That was all wrong. Uh, according to national exit polls I've seen, Donald Trump only lost college-educated women by six percentage points, which is like compared to the numbers we've seen, basically winning or coming even with them. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're right. It's it's more than just you know the the uh, you know the 
50-year-old work, manufacturing worker in Ohio who's scared about his job. Um, Donald Trump tapped into a need in America, a desire in America, to shake things up. And, and voters threw the equivalent of a bomb here in Washington, D.C. to make that happen. Amber Phillips, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Amber Phillips of the Washington Post. Let's move onwards now to Professor Thomas Whalen from Boston University, specializes in presidential politics. And uh, thank you for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. So, I mean, how do we make sense of this? You've got uh, a fair few people, as we were just hearing from there, who don't necessarily fit mm-hmm. the stereotype of the Trump fan who clearly voted for Donald Trump, uh, yet Barack Obama's generally seen as a, you know, a popular, outgoing president. So uh, they, people want change, but they're also not so devastated with the current status quo, it seems. Well, I think that's fair. But I think, you know, Hillary Clinton's, she made a big mistake when she um, picked essentially uh, a mirror image of herself uh, in Tim Kaine. You know, a centrist picking a centrist as a running mate. And I think that really alienated huge swaths of the party, uh, particularly African-American voters who had been so loyal over the years to the party. Um, you know, they were expecting someone like a Cory Booker of New Jersey to be on the ticket or, yes, you know, some sort of um, enticement to get out their vote in urban areas. And, or, you know, Julian Castro, um, the HUD secretary, you know, he would have been, you know, you know, a major factor in increasing the Latino vote, though that turned out to be pretty good. But even Bernie Sanders' uh, supporter, someone of his ilk, uh, Elizabeth Warren, senator uh, here in Massachusetts. And, you know, she did none of that. She just uh, picked another centrist. So she basically thumbed her nose at an important part of the party, the part of the party that embraces change. And this was a change election. And so I think in many ways... She blew it. And I think the other factor here, I don't really hear any analysts um, here in the States or elsewhere talk about it. Donald Trump was the only anti-war candidate um, in the race, uh, outside of Bernie Sanders, I suppose. But, I mean, we have been at war here in the United States essentially since 9-11. And who sends their sons and daughters to do all the fighting? Working-class voters. Mm. Uh, you know, a lot of them white that live in Pennsylvania, live in Indiana, live in Michigan. And, you know, they are tired of this endless fighting. And when their wounded sons and daughters come home, they get, you know, kind of uh, pushed to the side. They get lousy treatment from the uh, Veterans Administration. And so, and they can't find a job. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it, I think that all lends itself here. And, and you know, Donald Trump is saying, well, let's, get out of the Middle East, uh, let them fend for themselves. He has kind of an American first uh, foreign policy. And I think that resonated with a lot of um, American voters, uh, yeah. working class. Well, in the coming days, we will certainly be analyzing whether we can actually expect the U.S. foreign policy to shift considerably. And we'll be analyzing the impact on Korea specifically later in today's show. But for now, Professor Whalen, I'd like to tap in a little bit more into this question of the of the so-called working classes in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, this, this dismissal that people make of Trump supporters, I mean, I, I think we've already established that it, it certainly wasn't only uneducated white men who voted for Trump, but even if we were to say that that was a lot of them, to, to speak mm-hmm. of them in a degrading 
terminology reminds me a little bit of those who dismissed the Brexit voters. But their vote counts just as everybody else's does. And if you stand for a liberal country that defends the the, the, the undertrodden, then it seems to me very misguided to, um, to, to simply rule out a huge proportion of, of rural communities and those people who just happen not to have gone to college. Well, I think that's fair. And, you know, the problem here, especially in rural America, the, the great middle Midwest here, is that, you know, uh, the economy uh, has been bad for them for a very long time. And, you know, multinational corporations, particularly if you're a farmer, they've been buying up all this land, um, but it is, it's called the Rust Belt for a reason here. Industry has left, and, you know, their incomes have declined, and it's hard to raise a family under these conditions. And, and they look at Washington and the coast, and, you know, they seem to get all the largesse of the federal government. There seems to be a lot of cushy deals. Um, if you know the right people, you know, Hillary Clinton, you could argue that a creature of the system, you know, and so wasn't Mitt Romney, the Bushes. And they're asking, well, you know, they seem to reward their friends and themselves. Why can't they give us some of, the, some of that pie? And I think it has been a kind of been growing for decades here, this slow burn to just utter, in many ways, voter revolt um, yesterday. The other man that we've not mentioned so far, we talked about some of the figures uh, behind the Clinton scenes and the mistakes that her camp may have made, but Trump had a certain figure called Mike Pence, who certainly didn't get as many headlines as Donald Trump, but he is now key, isn't he, if uh, this Trump presidency is going to establish any sort of credibility. Well, yes, and I think Mike Pence is essentially going to end up running the day-to-day functions of the federal government. Um, Donald Trump has, you know, has been reported uh, that he basically wants to um, radically change the way the executive branch works. And, you know, he, he would make Mike Pence, in business terms, his uh, chief executive officer, his CEO, mm. running on things on a day-to-day basis. And, you know, Trump would be aside kind of making the big decisions, the big picture decisions. So, you know, Mike Pence is going to be the most powerful vice president in American history, more so than even Dick Cheney. And it's interesting that, you know, uh, this has all happened under, or will, under Republican administrations. And so this is a radical reconfiguration of power here in the United States. And it's interesting because over the years, we've always, you know, a lot of academics, a lot of uh, reporters, journalists have said, you know, the job of the presidency is too big for one man, given all the responsibilities. Well, I think uh, Trump is going to uh, try to address that concern. And, and another thing on Donald Trump, you know, as we look back on what happened yesterday, um, people might talk about the popular vote going Clinton's way, but I think we also have to recognize that Donald Trump did so much of this on his own, despite having Mike Pence now to become a very powerful vice president. You know, he didn't have a ringing Republican endorsement by any means. And, uh, and Donald Trump basically... You didn't need him. <laughs> no, no. I mean, so so he, so we can say he probably went further than many other candidates in in the modern era. Well, and you have to remember his unique background in business and in television and entertainment. Um, I would say this: that Donald Trump ran a twenty first century campaign. 
Hillary Clinton, the Bushes, and the rest of the Republican field were running a 20th century campaign. Look how he made innovative use of Facebook, of Twitter, and other social media devices. I mean, look how he deployed his forces. I mean, Jeb Bush, Jeb Bush raised $100 million early on in the Republican primary season. Once everyone saw that figure, they're like, oh, this race is over. There's no way uh, any candidate in the field can overcome that. And Donald Trump basically trumped, uh, trumped him, to, to pardon the expression. Mm. I mean, Jeb Bush was spending all this money on television ads. If you went in the New Hampshire primary, the first of the nation primary, I mean, all the airways, just nothing but Bush, Bush, Bush. And where did he end up finishing? Way off the mark. And I think this is kind of a pivotal turning point in how political campaigns will be conducted here on in in the United States, that... In a way, Trump has found a way uh, to have an effective campaign without spending oodles of money. And I, I think this ties into um, the emergence of new technology at the beginning of the uh, 21st century here. Because, you know, the pollsters have been slow to grasp the change. They can't figure out the metrics of it. How do you measure voters? If Trump's going to use everything on Facebook and, you know, Twitter, how does that translate into individual voters and areas of support. Inside the Trump campaign, they have, because, you know, just look right the past uh, week and uh, leading up to the uh, election, Trump sends, uh, goes to Minnesota. Everyone's saying, why the hell is he going to Minnesota? I mean, they knew exactly where to deploy their, their resources. Mm. And, you know, it, especially in that so-called blue wall, Pennsylvania, Minnesota, Michigan, I mean, Michigan, supposedly, it was over for, for months. And so, I mean, I, I think it's, not, you know, it's in terms of strategy, brilliant, and in terms of technology, very savvy. Yeah, absolutely incredible. I mean, we are out of time, but um, in a word, is Trump going to be able to get his promises done? Uh, will he be able to galvanize things in his direction, do you think, with the Republicans around him? Well, uh, the thing is, he is a man without a party. He is the party. The Republican Party is really Republican parties. And it's if he can marshal, leverage uh, his, uh, his great victory here um, in terms of getting legislative action. And as you think about it, he only is going to have a, like a two-year window. What usually happens when you have a, one so-called party dominate three branches of government they're usually crushed in the first midterms. And that happened with Barack Obama in 2010. Mm. And so he needs to get it done fast. And you just don't get the sense that, you know, he has a concerted kind of well-thought-out program. I might be wrong, but uh, I just don't get that sense. Yeah, well, I think at this point we, we've got to um, give him some credit. And we'll, 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 we'll watch closely. <laughs> Professor Whalen, thank you very much. Professor Thomas Whalen from Boston University will continue this morning in a few moments. It is Thursday, November 10th. I'm Alex Jensen. You're listening to This Morning, coming to you live on TBS EFM 101.3 in Seoul, GFN 98.7 in Gwangju and 93.7 in Yosu. 
This half hour, we will be getting more updates on our domestic side of things. Of course, you know, we talk about everything with Donald Trump and the relationship with Korea, how that might be negatively affected. But even if Donald Trump was to reach out today and say, Korea, or South Korea anyway, I want to be your best friend. Are we in a position even to take that hand? Because... Um, yeah, notwithstanding the fact that Donald Trump will wait a little while before he takes the uh, Oval Office, the fact remains that we are in crisis mode ourselves and uh, policy, uh, all kinds of policy, domestic and foreign, are up in the air here in Korea and we'll be getting the latest from the government scandal in a few moments. If you want to get in touch, Texas us Sharp 1013 for 51 per message. This half hour is brought to you by G-Market, Hotel Lotte Duty Free, G-Ben Company Wear, BMW Korea, Dongguk Pharmaceutical Company Panchidil and Downing Industrial Corporation.